This is going to be a podcast you will want to listen to all the way to the end. For 12 years, our guest was a professional French hornist, which I don't even know if that's the what you call it. He's a guy who played the French horn. Is that a hornist? Because it sounds bad. Anyway, he was with the Annapolis Brass Quintet, then at City Orchestra of Barcelona. Then he was a professor of French horn. After that, he worked as a professor at Syracuse University, where he taught economics and social entrepreneurship. I guess the horn thing didn't work out. Currently, he is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, but he is leaving that position this summer, and he's going to begin teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. His latest book is Love Your Enemy, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. It came out in early March. It's a bestseller on the uh, USA Today and New York Times list. He's also a columnist for the Washington Post, host of the podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show, best-selling author of 11 books on topics including the role of government, fairness, economic opportunity, happiness, and the morality of free enterprise. Don't miss a minute of this episode with Arthur Brooks. Who, who, who are we today? We're the Americans we always were. But it's a hard time. It's a hard time because after a financial crisis and all the stresses and strains, the belief that people in Washington, people who are in charge have left us behind, we get a dignity gap. There's a lot of despair when you travel around this country. Mm-hmm. And that despair is metastasized into something really dangerous, mm-hmm. which is contempt. The belief that somebody who disagrees with you is utterly worthless. The populism in Washington, the despair in the country, the, the, the fact that economic growth has largely been focused on just the top 20% of the income distribution. This is kind of made up nasty mix of mm-hmm. circumstances, an ecosystem that's really dangerous. Now put in social media mm-hmm. and anonymity. It, all this together has created this environment that we see today where we, we're still Americans. We're just oh. not our selves are we are we are we misjudging each other for instance the the border i i'm Mm -hmm. convinced that the cry for a border wall is not really a cry for a border wall it's a cry it's it's a i have trusted you to take care of our problems i've trusted you that you cared about Somebody coming in with illitent, somebody coming in with drugs, um, people coming in and and doing nefarious things. I trusted you for so long and you keep telling me you want to fix it and then you don't. I want a wall, not because I'm afraid of America, uh, because of Mexicans. I want a wall because I don't believe you actually mean this. And if I don't have a permanent wall, you can do whatever you want. But when the next guy comes in. Or when you don't have to be reelected, you're going to stop taking care of these things. And and I think a lot of the frustration that's happening that is being being made into, oh, you're a racist. Is actually. I don't trust the government anymore. I don't trust people in power anymore. And I want something fixed that used to be common sense. Hmm. You know. 
there are a lot of issues like this that happen in times of real political polarization, where it's not about the specific political case at hand. These are avatar issues. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, you'll see, by the way, the left on uh, the political left in America, we're talking of effectively about open borders. You know, the, the Democratic Party doesn't want open borders. They've never talked about open borders before. But the reason they are is to be in, to, in contrast to what mm-hmm. they think Trump is talking about. Mm-hmm. And the people who support Donald Trump are saying what they're saying about the wall to be in contrast to what they believe mm-hmm. the other side believes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in these times of incredible polarization, we, we do theater. This is kind of and again i understand it's important to have sovereignty i understand it's important to have rule of law but a lot of the times in the discussions that we have we're trying to set ourselves apart from the other side we're actually making issues that have traditionally not been at the center of the american conversation into those that are because we can get the daylight the maximum amount of daylight between the two sides and i think that's a perfect example is that just politics it's not just politics it's culture uh we're more polarized as a country than we've been at any time since the civil war a lot of data show this. One in six Americans have stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of politics since the 2016 election. And, and here's the kicker, Glenn. 93% of Americans hate it. 93% of us say it's not the best country. We are not who we're supposed to be. And we hate how divided we become. So I say this. I mean, you and I are on the same I mean, mm-hmm. I think not, not just For the years. same book, but the yeah. same page totally. of the book. Personal values and public values. Right. And, and, and lift yourself up above this and encourage people. By having courage, mm. that's contagious. And encourage others to do the same. But you'll, I know it. I don't need a poll to tell me. I know people in America are tired of this. Yeah. They don't want to feel this way. Yeah. But when you talk to them, they will all say, well, they're not going to stop. Right. They're just not going to stop. And I look at the two sides, and I think they're right. They're not going to stop. Neither side's going to stop. Neither side's going to stop. Right. But most of us are kind of weirdly in the middle on this. So when I say 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country, that's true. That doesn't mean 93% of us don't have opinions. Correct. Look, I'm, I'm a political conservative, so are you. Mm-hmm. I have strong opinions. I go hammer and tongs after the stuff that I think about. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that people who disagree with me are stupid and evil. On the contrary, I mean, everybody listening to us, everybody watching us on YouTube right now, they love somebody with whom they disagree politically. Mm-hmm. And, and they're bitter and they're angry about the fact that they're being told that they have to repudiate their mother-in-law mm-hmm. or somebody who, you know, somebody, their mother, their sister, they don't, they don't like it, right? The, the problem is they, got, they have no team. And furthermore, there's, there is a little bit of a culprit here. The 7% that don't hate how divided we become as a country are dining out on it. You know, we have a whole outrage industrial complex in politics and media on campuses. You know, people who are basically getting rich and powerful and famous saying the other side is stupid and evil. Mm-hmm. Look, I disagree strongly because dis- with other people because disagreement is the essence of the competition of ideas. It makes America great. <laughs> Disagreement's good. We shouldn't agree because mm-hmm. agreement leads to stagnation and mediocrity. And, mm-hmm. you know, one candidate elections and it's terrible. You know, one product in the stores. You, we don't, don't want that. I don't want to live that way. But I don't want to hate the people who disagree with me Correct. because I don't hate the people who disagree with me. I want to compete. 
on these ideas with them. And basically, when we have 7% or whatever minority ginning up the hatred between the two sides, then you can be in this disequilibrium where 93% of the people say they don't like how the country is, is, is acting, don't like how we're fighting each other all the time and hating each other all the time, treating each other with contempt. But at the same time, they don't know what to do. And so they're on one side or the other. So what do they do? The first thing to remember is that it's really not about just getting a better president or Congress or government change anything. It's not. What's going to happen is we need an interior revolution, Glenn. This is interesting. You know, I was thinking about this for a long time. You know, I'm I'm an institutional guy. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. I run a big think tank. You know, I talk to politicians like you. You know, I talk to I've known presidents of the United States. It's a great life. And I always think there's got to be an institutional answer, but there isn't. Whenever it comes to hatred, whenever it comes to relationship problems, that's an interior revolution. That's a social movement that starts inside each person's heart. And here's basically how it works. Look, nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. Mm-hmm. Ever. <laughs> and that means when we're saying that I'm right and you're stupid and evil, mm-hmm. that's a counterproductive. It's a, it's a very it's a it's an ineffective way of arguing. Now, there are people getting rich making those arguments, but we will never prosper on the basis of that. So we're not persuasive. Nobody's persuading anybody. Number two, we're unhappy. We find that actually the current climate where we treat each other with contempt in this country with a bitter polarization is leading to higher levels of depression, higher levels of loneliness, higher levels of anger higher levels of stress. In other words, when we are treated with contempt and we treat other people with contempt, we're not as happy as we could be. Mm-hmm. And number three, we hate how it's turning the country apart. Lose, lose, lose. The answer to that is not that I am going to change the whole country. The answer to that is that Arthur's going to change Arthur. So I wrote Love Your Enemies as a way to say, this is my declaration of independence, man. I'm not declaring bankruptcy. I'm declaring independence independence from the outrage industrial complex, independence from the contempt that's ripping my country apart because I refuse not to love my fellow Americans. I want to be more persuasive. I want to be happier. I want to do something good for America. So I've, you know, after I left Fox, the year I joined Fox. Yeah. I was at... Uh, it was a great year, by the way. It was. We watched it. It was like, was like Fox at 5 p.m. Yeah, every day. <laughs> so in 2008, I'm voted the uh, third, uh, third or fourth most admired man in the world. You know that stupid poll that comes out yeah. that shows how stupid America really is. <laughs> I was, it was in between Nelson Mandela and the Pope. I was tied with one of them. I don't remember. And, uh, and, and we just had a laugh. We were like, this is ridiculous go to Fox uh. in a year. I'm hated by half of the country saying the same things that I said on CNN, just a different megaphone now and, um, and hated by half the country. So I'm there for a couple of years and I leave and, and I really do some soul searching on, okay, so if you had to do it all over again, cause you see the result, what would you do? Right. And if I had the same knowledge, exactly the same thing. I did my best. But if I had today's knowledge, if I knew now or then what I know now, I'd do it differently. How would you do it differently? Um, I would um, uh, I would never point the finger. <laughs> I would never um, uh, make declarative, broad statements on movements or people. Ah. Okay. So, so let me see if I'm, if I'm stating this right. You would separate more ideas that you disagree with, with the people who hold them. I would try everything I could to not talk about people, but ideas. 
Right. That's really hard to do when you're talking about the news. But that's mm. where we go wrong. So I I I say to people because I've really reflected and I thought, OK, I spent two years talking about the things that were coming right on a lot of them. Right. Talking about what is happening, how this system works. And it it didn't make a dent with anyone who is uh, except on my team. Mm-hmm. OK. That's not a winning strategy. That's not a persuasive strategy. Correct. And now the left is doing the same. The right is still doing it. Right. And I'm watching it and I'm saying, guys, this doesn't work. We're locked down. We're totally locked down. Totally locked down. Yeah. So when I say this to people, they say, but you have to. And I say, you don't have to do anything. Convince. You don't have to convince me. Convince somebody that... Pretend I'm that person right. that says, you can't do that. Somebody on the, see, let's say somebody on, who agrees with us in politics, somebody yes. on the right. Mm-hmm. And they say, look, the people who say these things on the left, they are evil people. They're wicked. They're not just wrong. They want something as bad for America. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say it. I've heard this many times. Mm-hmm. I've heard this many times. And my answer to that is, okay, what's your objective? Do you want to live in a one-party state? Are you grateful to not live in a one-party state? then you just told me you're grateful for the other party. Are you grateful that you live in a place where there can be a competition of ideas? Then you're grateful for the other side on that competition of ideas. Furthermore, what if you could do anything you wanted and there were wicked people? Do you want to kick them out of America? Do you want to put them in jail? Do you want to hurt them? I'm going to say no. I know what you really want. I bet. I bet you want to persuade them. I bet that you really, in your heart of hearts, don't hate them. You want them to think differently because you love your ideas so much and you think they're so good for America. Okay, let's talk about persuasion. How many people have you persuaded this week, this month, this year, this decade? How many people? You're stupid and evil. It has never persuaded anybody in the history of humanity. And by the way, it's morally bereft. Because you love people with whom you disagree politically. So to say that people on the other side are stupid and evil, you're talking about your mom. And and furthermore, you're putting up with some talk show host saying that about your mom. Shame on you. Fight for your mom. So if it's impractical and it's immoral, it's time to change. Let's be persuasive for for, for what? Don't agree. I mean, agreements for chumps. Agreements for mediocre places and mediocre people, mm-hmm. unless you really are in agreement. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, don't give in. But if you can't actually disagree with respect and love, look, we're not talking about terrorists kicking down your door. You're talking about Americans who disagree with you and maybe strongly disagree with you. But this is the freest, most prosperous country in the history of the world, built by people who risk their lives running away from the jackbooted thug and the knock in the night so that they could have a competition of ideas. Shame on us if we can't pursue that competition but don't you understand that these are the jackbooted thugs that are coming they're talking <laughs> about ending the free market they're talking about uh getting into bed with people like google and monitoring everybody and taking away our health care and our choices they're, they're they actually are talking now about killing children after right after they're born don't you see these are those guys <laughs> you know the problem that we have when I talk to people on the, on the hard left, they can't tell the difference between an average Trump supporter and a Nazi. 
They can't. And the reason mm-hmm. is because they're in their silos and they have been hearing from their media figures and from their college professors. And they've been hearing from their from the politicians and the sh- extreme wing of their party that there's no real difference between people who have strong views with which they disagree and, and historically murderous, tyrannical regimes around right. the world. And, and, and you know what is happening on the right, too? You know, we're saying that any a run of the mill Bernie Sanders supporters is no and supporters, no different than a Stalinist. Well, man, we got to get out of the house more. Mm-hmm. We got to remember that that is just a that's a that it's a it's a huge distinction between americans who disagree with us we are very far away from these extremes now again it's okay that we strongly disagree it's okay to say on, on anything from the border to abortion to say no no you're i believe that your ideas are completely wrong but that's different than saying so therefore you're a stalinist or a nazi mm-hmm. because you've foreclosed any possibility of making any progress and you basically said i got I got basically only two scenarios, either I lose or you lose. Mm-hmm. And in America, we can't make progress when we have that Manichaean situation, when we have that black and white situation. It just won't work. So that was another problem I think I would do differently. I don't know how, mm-hmm. though, is I talked about the Nazis a lot. Right. But I, I wasn't calling people Nazis. I was saying these are the seeds. Yeah. And, and if it's not, if it's planted... The next party will just water that, too. Right. It's it's whoever in the end grabs the pendulum because of so much chaos that has been created on the ground by all this arguing. Yeah, no, that's actually this. This is the perfect ecosystem for us to actually lose our Freedom. our ability to have a competition of ideas in the first place, yeah. because somebody will say, look, this is chaos. And, and, and sooner sooner or later, yeah. people will throw up their hands and say, all right. All right. Yeah. This is a mess. We can't do anything. We go, you know, the Democrats are in charge. Nothing gets done. Then the Republicans are in. They take everything and make these wild promises and nothing gets done. And mm-hmm. it goes back and forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I'm not so sure about the democracy thing anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about you, you wish you had when you were at Fox in those Fox years um, that you had separated people from their ideas more. And, and you know, I wish I'd done that, too. I, I, you know, it's the same thing. It's like none of us is is without blame. I know. And, you know, I saw a none of us. I, I mean, I don't mean just the people. I mean, people who have never spoken on television or radio, just in their own home. Yeah. All of us treating people with contempt. And, you know, contempt is the conviction of utter worthlessness of another person. Mm-hmm. Anger is not problematic. You know, anger, according to specialists in marital reconciliation, anger is uncorrelated with separation and divorce. You know, thank God I'm married to a Spaniard. So, you know, it's like, you know <laughs> But it's it's uh, contempt where you take anger and you mix it with disgust that becomes a toxic compound. Right. It's kind of like, you know, chlorine and bleach. You put mm-hmm. it together, you get chlorine, uh, you get chlorine gas mm-hmm. and it kills you. There's a guy named John Gottman who teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's the world's leading expert on bringing couples together. He's a hero and he has a, a marriage laboratory and he can predict with 94 percent accuracy if a couple will be divorced within three years um, with one session. And what he's looking for is contempt. He's looking for these expressions like eye rolling, sarcastic jokes, derision, dismissal of another person. That's how the that's how people are talking on television. That's how people are talking about the Thanksgiving table around the Thanksgiving table. That's how they talk to family members. It's not right. You know, and so the big problem, if we want to declare war on this, we actually have to declare war on the communications habits that that have been cultivated within us such that we can listen to other people, really listen to what, what their moral principles are and engage them at that level. And then, then disagree. If you listen, really listen, not trying to win, not trying to not listen while thinking, okay, I got to remember that because I have to say this. 
Just listen. Put your shield down. Right. I have found that both the right and the left, I'm not talking about the fringe crazies, both the right and the left, generally, outside of Washington, are saying the same thing. We're frustrated with exactly the same things. Right. And we're being told it's them on each side. No, right. no, no. It might be you guys. It might be Washington that mm. is that we're all saying this isn't working because we're not following certain principles. Right. And we've lost the mooring of those principles in our own self and our own home. Yes. That we can't recognize when somebody, yes. when, when the system has lost it. So it's not just them. No, it's us. It's us. Yes, it yeah, starts is, with us. Jordan Peterson is super popular these days. He probably had him on your, if you had him on your show, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. he's phenomenal. Yeah. The reason that Jordan Peterson is so, in my view, is such a big phenomenon right now, particularly among young men, is mm -hmm. because he calls people to personal revolution. This is mm -hmm. the point of my book, is calling people to personal revolution. Jordan Peterson basically says, you know that evil out there with the other guys, the other guys, the other guys, it's in your heart too. If you want to take on evil and you want progress, if you want things to be better, be the master of yourself. Conquer yourself. And people are like, can I do it? Can I do that? Can, can I do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that possible for me to do that? Yes. No, no, no. It's not just possible. You must do that. You must be the master of yourself. Take your happiness. Grab your happiness. Grab the love to which you're entitled. And the only way that you do that is willing the good of the other, even if you disagree with the other. You know, and so that's the key. I mean, yeah, it's true. We, we haven't been represented well with leaders in Washington. It's true. They have not listened enough. But, but you know what else? You know, there are people all over this country that have lost the frontier spirit, the entrepreneurial startup life that basically says that when things aren't right, I got to do something about it. You know, it's we, it's it's and the United States goes through phases like this. You see this all throughout history. Every 50 years or so, we go through a phase like this where we have, you know, a bad economic circumstance, people who are demobilized, people who blame leaders. We get populism and the whole thing falls apart and we start again. And this is not the first time that this has happened. So let's watch to the end of the movie and say, what is the personal revolution I need within? How can I grab my happiness? How can I show more love? How can I be more persuasive, happier, more successful, and help my country? And if we can start that social movement, Glenn, um, I actually am more optimistic than I've been in a long, long time. Okay, so how? It starts with the revolution within. Asking ourselves, what am I trying to do? You know, what is the outcome that I want to see? Do I actually want people to be more bitter, angrier, more hostile? Do I want more hatred or do I want more love? Now, for most of us, that's a question that answers itself. Yeah. I want more love. I want to experience more love and I want other period people to experience more love. Can I push back on this? Please do. Um, I have found, and what's amazing to me, I have found so many diehard Christians yeah. who say the Jesus stuff won't work. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's what Judas said. It worked then. It worked for Lincoln. Yeah. It worked for Gandhi. It worked for Martin Luther King. What, what, what makes you say it won't work? People of faith yeah. have lost their faith that love is the most revolutionary. Now, most of the people who are making that argument, it's one of two things happening. The first is that they're in a very short-term time horizon. If you've only got three weeks, then you'll get out the negative power tools yeah. all day long. But if you're playing the long game, if you're playing for five years, 10 years, 
the rest they'll of say, my life, eternity. They'll say, I know, but they'll say, we don't have that. Yeah, well, we okay, so, time. so I, I, I've, I got that. But I also recognize that, you know, the people who were most effective were the people who were playing the long game. You know, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. it was, you know, he was playing, look, when he, when he died, when he was assassinated, he was at 33% popularity of his mm-hmm. ideas. Today, 95%. He won. Mm-hmm. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to have satisfaction in the next four weeks? Or are we actually trying to save America? What are we trying to do? Try to convince people, because I've tried to do it, that Bonhoeffer won. Absolutely. He was hung in the woods alone. Right. Yeah. Killed. I know. I mean, Look, if you but read, he won. I know. If you, read the, if you read the second letter of St. Paul to Corinthians, it's got that desperate language. And you can tell St. Paul is going like, I don't know if this is working. I don't know. And he's, he's frustrated and he's angry. And, and, and he, he, he created Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Christianity, as we understand it as a religion, comes out of the, the way that St. Paul taught. We, we can't expect to win in the time horizon that we are going to most enjoy. The question is, what are we trying to do? Do I want to have more love in the world? Do I want a better country? Do I want America to continue to be a gift to the world or not? Look, you and I have talked many times about capitalism. Capitalism is a long game. The reason I came into the free enterprise movement is because poverty is the thing that I care about the most because I recognize that since 1970, two billion of my brothers and sisters have been pulled out of poverty by one thing, which is the American free enterprise system spreading around the world. If I had gone three weeks to three weeks or four weeks to four weeks or even year to year, I would have said, yeah, big government programs and socialism, they work better. They work better as the, the short-term power tools. But I'm saying, dude, I want, I got a 50-year time horizon because I want 2 billion fewer people who are earning their success. That, if that's our gift to the world, you have to think on a long time frame. And if you want more love in the world, hating on the short term is not going to get you there. And if you're actually trying to practice the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, then short-term hatred is not going to get you to that goal either. It just isn't it's not compatible with what he taught he did get angry he turned over the tables of the money changers but at the same time he was working what he wanted was to change the hearts of the Mm -hmm. other people why because he had love for everybody including his tormentors he said matthew 5 44 love your enemies Mm -hmm. he didn't say kill your enemies hate your enemies Mm -hmm. he said love your enemies do good to those who harm you Mm -hmm. because that was the ultimate long-term strategy I can tell you that I have a hard time relating to Christ. You know what I mean? He's a pretty hard figure to Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard. You're kind of like, love your enemies. Well, yeah, but you're Jesus. Yeah. I'm nowhere close to Jesus. All right. Uh, but I, I read, I read Paul. Yeah. And I read um, just, just reading. Uh, Letters of Peter. Or, 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 or yeah. just reading. Um, um, the opening of of Acts, the first two chapters, where he lays out, you got to be together. You have to be of one mind. Then you're going to be influenced. You all come together. Right. Make sure you're going to be influenced and things are going to happen. But they're going to say horrible things. Mir- miracles are going to happen. Right. They're going to see it. They're going to deny it. They're going to tear you down. But love them. Right. Love them. Right. And you see Paul all the way through. He lays out. He's, he's more calculated. Jesus was just Jesus. 
Paul's more calculated. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's waiting to be taken to the steps to be whipped. Yeah. And he's like, hey, hang on just a second. I just <laughs> I want to talk to these people for a second. And he's amazing because he he has the same pattern over and over again. You know, I really like when he's on Mars Hill. You know, I come here. He, they got all these gods. Yeah. Come here. It, it's, I think it's in the scripture where it says you're too religious. That's not, what it, that's not right. He didn't mean you're too religious. He meant you guys. Man, I've come here. I see all these gods everywhere. You guys are really super religious. I even found a god. I, I even found a, a, a temple dedicated to, to a the, god with no name. Right. <laughs> and he used, he, used he, he talks, I read it even in your poetry. Yeah. He knows them. He's found a way to love them. Yeah. He admires what they've done. Right. Then he finds the door of the unknown God and says, by the way, I know who that one is. Yeah. And they listen. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why? Because he made moral common cause with them. But, but Glenn, there's also, you know, people listening to us are going to be like, yeah, Glenn, Arthur, you know, those guys are really lucky guys. They've got a really good platform. Easy for those guys to stand up there and say, love your enemies. Right. Oh, Easy. But, but you know what? <laughs> it's an incredibly practical, self-interested argument that I'm making, too. Because the one thing that I know is that you'll never persuade anybody who doesn't already agree with you. If you if you treat other people with hate, Mm -hmm. you will be more stressed out, more frustrated and more lonely if you do that. And so will the other people. And you're getting a country that if you're like the 93 percent of the rest of us, we don't like the way the country is going. So this is a very self-interested argument. If you turn it around, if if when people treat you with contempt, which they're going to, if you go on social media, you go on Twitter, you go and I go on Twitter, 20 seconds from now, we post mm-hmm. a picture of Glenn and Arthur doing mm-hmm. a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to get just rained on with mm-hmm. contempt. We have a choice of how we're going to react. Now you can be, you know, it's like react like if you, if you stimulated a, a slug with a, you know, an electrode, it'll react, right? Mm-hmm. If you can react to that, you can react to that contempt with contempt or... You can choose your action because you're the master of yourself and choose to react with kindness and respect. People who are watching that interaction, they're going to say, huh, I think I know which, which person in that exchange I like better. That's how persuasion works, man. This, especially with social media now, where we could make a group statement by being individuals. I know. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like if you're walking in, you're, you're invited to this ball party whatever and you walk into a giant ballroom and there's 70 people over on one side and they're just yelling and screaming at each other taking both sides all sides is just awful and there are five people on the other side and they're laughing and they're they might even be going these guys are crazy and laughing about how crazy they are and they're all getting along i guarantee you you walk into that room, you do not go to the 70 people, you go to the five. Right. And you at least observe what's happening in that safe area. And yet, <laughs> on social media... Right, you go to the 70. It's crazy, it's and craziness. If, if we were just five... Right. Eventually, right. those 70, that, those numbers would dwindle down because they either kill each other 
or some people would just go, I'm tired of this, man. This is crummy. I don't like this it. I don't want to be over here. This is not like fun. This. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what a lot of people are actually starting to figure out about social media. They're starting to figure out that it's not They don't enjoy it. It's not fun. They're not persuading anybody. And we're starting to actually see that bleed. So let's create a movement like the people who are watching us. I've made a public commitment that I'm going to say five nice and loving things for every criticism I put out on Twitter. That's my five to one rule. By the way, I didn't make that up. John Gottman, the guy I talked about before, the marriage counselor, mm-hmm. he makes his couples do a five to one thing so they can't criticize each other until they've said five loving things. It makes them write it down in a notebook. Mm. So I've made a commitment to doing that. I've made a commitment. I, I wrote a book called Love Your Enemy. So if I'm ever a jerk, boy, am I ever going to hear about mm-hmm. it fast, right? When you, mm-hmm. you write a book and it's on the bestseller list and, and mm-hmm. it's called Love Your Enemies, well, uh, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you know that if 10 years from now I'm acting like a jerk, I'm, I'm going to hear it. But why? Because I want that. Call me out because I, I haven't been right in the past. It's consistently. I want to be better. I want to be a force for good. And the, the interesting thing about this, this is not just about me as a public figure. Glenn Beck is a public figure. This is about every single person watching us who is a leader. And says, what kind of leader do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Do I want to be a coercive, divisive leader who goes anonymously into a forum and hates on somebody else and persuades no one and winds up more stressed out? No, for a little tiny bit of dopamine, for a little mm-hmm. bit of this neurotransmitter, this little like smoking a cigarette, or... Do I want to be the guy that people are watching and saying, huh, that's actually the kind of person I want to be. Am I the kind of person I would want my kids to be? You know, and and when we do that, by the way, we coalesce around a philosophy that Americans like the best, which is frankly kind of a center right philosophy, pro-capitalist philosophy. So let's do that on the basis of love as opposed to trying to pretend that we're going to browbeat the whole country into it because it's not going to work. speak directly to somebody left right doesn't matter that they're afraid they're afraid they see what's on the horizon and i want to talk to you about tech in a minute Mm -hmm. but they see what's on the horizon they feel insignificant they feel left behind they feel whichever side they feel like they no longer matter right okay and the one thing that they can do to matter is to Pick a side and be part of a team because you're even more ostracized when you won't pick a team, when you won't. And I don't mean pick a team. I mean, when you won't slam. Right. Because then everybody's going after you. Right. At that point. Right. Right. And so and I hear this from people all the time. They'll say, I can't say anything. I'm glad you say something because I can't say anything. I'd lose my job. And, Uh. And I think all the time, you know, that's a very big possibility for me too. (laughs) Look, it's happened to you. It's happened to you. You've gone from thing to thing. It's not like, you know, you stayed in one job for your whole life. Correct. You've had disagreements with employers. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you, you, Glenn Beck lives a startup life. And that's the answer to this whole conundrum where people are afraid, right? We live in a climate of fear. We have a culture of fear. The big, the, what, you know, it's like love drives out fear, St. John the Apostle. Yeah. Why? Because the fear is the ultimate negative emotion. It's the opposite of love. People think hate is the opposite of love. It's not. Fear is the opposite of love. Exactly when right. you feel fear, that's crowding out love. And so what do you need to do if you want to have more love in your life? Take on the fear. Look, you you confronted fear in your life. I did, too. We all do. We have to confront it head on. But when we have a culture where our leaders on right and left are telling us to be afraid of the other side, when, look, and, and it's, it's, it's endemic across our culture. You know, I'm looking at a lot of data these days about people in the 20s. They're a third less likely to be in love than we were when we were that age. It's They're less so like sad. they don't date. It's like I asked my I can't, I have one of my sons, a junior in college. Is this true? He's like, no one dates. 
they're less likely do do? to be married. Do do? Like, they, they don't have relationships. And the, and the reason for this is because there's a culture of fear of personal rejection. That's a non-entrepreneurial culture. So when people are afraid, they're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of being, of, of being ostracized because of politics. You got you, you got to stand up. You got to live a startup life. You got to say, this is what I believe. I reject fear. I will live with love. There is no other way. And if we do that, that's the interior revolution within. When, to love your enemies is the ultimate subversive tactic. Uh-huh. It's the ultimate toughness. It's, this, it's funny. I mean, I, I tell a lot of stuff in this book about the Dalai Lama because I've been working with the Dalai Lama for seven years. Mm. It's the weirdest relationship because, you know, the president of the American Enterprise Institute with his holiness, the Dalai Lama, the Tibetan yeah. Buddhist, you know, the most respected yeah. religious leader in the world. And people sort of associate him with the political left. But what he is, is he's a man fully alive because he is he has stood up ultimately to fear. And we talk about this all the time. And we talk about how how ultimately you, you you're responsible for living your one life. And, and when you do that, then it's the ultimate satisfaction. I mean, look, if you need to, don't look at Twitter. Delete the app on your phone. It's no big deal. And if you want to, if you're really willing to take a big bite out of life, then stand up and say, I refuse to hate. I refuse to hate people just because they disagree with me. I refuse to be afraid. I refuse to have people in my own political party telling me that I'm one step away from a jackbooted thug. Because I don't believe it. I don't actually believe it. I think that it's still a great country. I still believe it's a, it doesn't mean I'm going to get everything I want. We're going to get a bunch of laws that I have. We're going to taxes going to be all screwed up. And, <laughs> you know, abortion laws are never going to be what I like or they're not going to be for a long time. But. But but for Pete's sake, this is not Nazi Germany. It's not, you know, we're not about to have a knock in the night in this country. So we have to stop being afraid and we have to stop start living our lives as people who are not afraid. That's that's why Jordan Peterson right now is so popular, because Jordan Peterson is telling particularly young men, take control, be the master, stop being afraid, recognize what you have within you, good and bad. And maybe you can actually start um, start being as alive as you're supposed to be. Just spent a weekend with Tony Robbins a couple weeks ago. Same message. See your coach? Yeah. Same message. Yeah. Same message. Just, yeah. just uh, who are you? Who are you? Yeah. You decide who you are. So what's blocking you? Yeah. You. Yeah, yeah. Take it out. Go. That's exactly right. I mean, it's a, Tony Robbins uh, has an incredible ministry. Um, what Tony Robbins has been able to do. I mean, finding the giant within, I mean, that's just like, he's actually literally a giant. (laughs) I know he is. (laughs) It's amazing that you use that word because he he is so deeply spiritual. All the stuff he talks about. Yeah. We just all use different language. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's all the same truth. It's all the same truth. truth. And when we, what we are doing in public life, when we talk about public policy and politics to hurt this country is by telling people that they're victims to telling people that they should be, that they should be uh, the master, their master should be their grievance, that they need to band together to fight somebody as opposed to being able to, to stand up on their own. I mean, Tony Robbins, when you know, when you see him and he's talking to people who feel that they've been oppressed and they've been held down, he says, throw off your chains, man. I know. I mean, stand up Mm -hmm. because you can. And it's the ultimate Mm -hmm. freeing experience that that's what Americans need to do, too. Mm -hmm. We are not victims. We're the ultimate non-victim country. Like the Becks and the Brookses Mm. came to this country as ambitious riffraff. Mm-hmm. Running away from some. And we're still ambitious riffraff. At least I am. <laughs> totally. my, my family is still just totally. riffraff. So, so, uh, so riffraff, it's time to unite. 
Mm-hmm. That's the point of love your enemies. The ultimate act of subversive riffraff is to stand up against the, the outrage industrial complex and say, I refuse to hate because I refuse to live in fear. That's the ultimate message. And it's a how to guide on how to get past the fear. I have a uh, my assistant is Scottish. Yeah, uh, he was with the Royal Marines and some elite, you know, kill you with a toothpick and a spoon <laughs> deal. And uh, uh, it's like murderous MacGyver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he was uh, we were talking about uh, curse words because, you know, you watch British television and they can use the C word like there. It's running out of style yeah. and it's so jarring to yeah. America. And and I said, what is your deal with that? And he <laughs> said, it doesn't mean it. It doesn't mean the same thing over there. You know, it's 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 just it's, it carries a different connotation over here. And he said, I learned that real fast Um, he said but you guys have a word that i cannot get used to what's that he said you guys will call your you call each other oh yeah bastard he said you don't ever say that over there (laughs) note to self right but i but it makes sense that it means nothing here but over there where it's all hierarchy it's all who are you related to what family did you come from here it's like we're all bastards. Yeah. <laughs> we're all the riffraff. We're all the scum. And we made it. There it means something. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And and you know, it's for for us to remember, it's funny, you know, Glenn, when I when I talk to Americans and ask them about their families, they always brag about how poor their ancestors were. <laughs> that's like a point of pride. There's no country in the world except maybe Israel where it's also a point of pride that your family came from nothing and mm-hmm. built itself up. And, and what that is, is the, in, in the time in, in American life that's so inspirational where this really became a thing was after the Civil War, after this time of incredible polarization in the United States. And, and the country had to come together, and it did spontaneously around the self-improvement movement, where you know the Baptists and the Methodists and the tent revivals and the abolitionists mm-hmm. uh, who, who before had gotten rid of slavery, then they were talking about temperance. Um, uh, temperance. And, and, and and others like Andrew Carnegie building English speaking libraries and Dale Carnegie, no relation that I'm aware of, was mm-hmm. writing <clears throat> how to win friends and influence people. This was the civic religion of what? Mm-hmm. Of riffraff being his or her own CEO. There was no grievance. There was no victimization. Right. And it's time for Americans to get that back. I, I, I just performed uh, at a, a Carnegie Theater. Did you? Uh, yeah, in Pittsburgh. And it was adjoined to a library. And I, I'm sitting in this library. I read a lot. I'm sure you do, too. I have a pretty big library, but, you know, bigger than most people because nobody reads anymore. Yeah. But, you know, it's not an it's not some wealthy, you know, crazy library full of books. Uh, and my library is probably bigger than that original library. OK. And he said, I have to build this. He built these libraries all over, all over the country. English speaking libraries all over, 2,509 of them. It's crazy. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. And, and we don't know this. And, and what he said about why he built them, do you, do you remember this? So that every man, so that every man can lift himself up. Yeah. He said, not everyone will use the ladder, mm-hmm. but there is a ladder to pull yourself out. Right. And it is, it's all in a king's library. So right. he wanted these libraries to be fit for a king so if you had the desire to pull yourself out 
you had the capability. So the shoeshine boy has equal opportunity with the son of a wealthy man. Yes. That, and, you know, that is the American spirit. Now, is it always going to be true? Is it always going to be perfect? Are the pathways to earn success always going to be perfect? Of course not. We want them to be. And, and, and in point of fact, they've been blocked too much. Over the, yes. fu- over the past few decades. Yes. It's been too hard to do that. There's not been enough income mobility, both going up and also, frankly, coming down. Yeah. You know, there's just not, there's been, there's, you know, people create moats around their castles and we have to fight against that all the time. But to basically throw in the towel and say, and, and to and have populists tell us, you know, somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. Mm-hmm. Whether, it's a, whether it's a foreigner or a banker or a capitalist or an immigrant, it's not right to say that somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. And the reason that things are not right in your life is entirely because of somebody else's culpability. Right. That's an anti-American sentiment. And I, look, I, I, I get it. Things are hard. Things have been hard in my life at times. Things are hard in, people, in the lives of people who are listening to us. And, and there is skepticism about this but i tell you one thing that will never get the job done is complaining about it and banding together and saying that some other side that disagrees with us is inherently stupid and evil all we're going to get after that is a cold civil war and a cold civil war is in a country that's weak and a cold civil war is in a country that's vulnerable to people who wish us ill and we can't afford that help me solve a problem i've never been able to answer free market is fantastic free market not not what we have not crony capitalism not crony capitalism okay and that's really part of the question right i look at two examples let me start with rockefeller when rockefeller was building rockefeller center i don't know if you've ever noticed really looked i'm i'm very into art and and the architecture of of rockefeller center and uh i used to drive to radio city music hall every day that was where my studios were and it's all designed for a reason everything has a reason Mm. it's almost a temple to man right okay uh and as i'm driving up i notice one day that building is an old 1800s building and there's another one on the other side of 30 Rock that's part of 30 Rock now. That's this old 1800s building. Out of all these blocks of these perfect Art Deco, there's two buildings that stand alone and they don't match. So I looked up, hmm. what, how, how, what, is it? what happened? Yeah, what is it? So he bought blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks, like 12 blocks, okay? Bought everybody out. There were two owners that wouldn't sell out. Hmm. One was a guy who was greedy. He offered him, I think, a million dollars during the Depression. Sell it. He thought Rockefeller was going to keep going up. And so he said, nope. And Rockefeller's top was a million. He said, screw him. The other guy was a guy who owned an Irish bar. It was his family's Irish bar since the 1800s. Right. He knew that prohibition was going to end, and he said, this is going to be my family's bar again. I'm not selling. I don't care what the price is. So Rockefeller said, build around. Okay? That wouldn't happen now. Those guys would have eminent domain. They would have lost those places immediately. Somewhere along the line, America loses its de Tocqueville. 
that at some point people get powerful enough and rich enough that they kick the door behind them. Right. Okay. Only when, and this, I can't believe I'm saying this in the 1930s, but only when things like eminent domain, I'm sorry, man, that's his property. He can do whatever he wants with it. When that's strong enough, we're okay. But when you have people like Google, when you have Apple, you have these gigantic corporations with all this money and they spend all of that money in Washington to write laws. They're closing the opportunity, kicking the door behind them. So I don't want to ever live in a place where I, uh, I, I that I would say, well, there's only so much money you can make. Oh, there's only so much this you mm-hmm. can make. Oh, we've got to break these people up. How do you stop these and not everybody's like this carnegie is a good example how do you stop people who are that wealthy from dictating the terms for everybody else so the problem with crony capitalism forget particular companies the problem with crony capitalism is that the really really rich guys have a lot of power right. and they have a, and they have power not just to add to their own wealth but to protect themselves from startups to protect themselves from new companies. Correct. That's usually what happens. Right. So the way that we need to, dis- to, 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 to gen- generate better policy, to engineer policies in this country, is to block that. We don't need to break up any companies. We don't need to prohibit block any the size. the fact that they can buy another company? No, no. Block the fact that they can actually generate regulations. Okay. That they, can, they have perfect capability with their you know, vast armies of lawyers and accountants mm-hmm. and specialists and consultants to cope with, but that the little guys can't. See, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have an over-regulated economy and huge companies like an over-regulated economy because it doesn't hurt them. They can afford it. It's a barrier. It becomes a barrier to entry, effectively. So we need fewer barriers to entry in an economy that's more capitalistic. And then then capitalism will take care of itself. Doesn't that require uh, a uh, public that is educated enough to know... We don't have anybody that really understands high tech. Maybe five people in the Congress. Maybe five people. Right. We are, in, we are on the verge of something entirely different. And when I talk to people in Congress, they'll say, I'll tell them about something that's on the horizon right. in the next two years. And it'll be completely new to them. Yeah, it'll be a complete surprise, And right? they'll be like, well, we've got to pass a law. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's moving so fast. By the time you get your head out of your butt, it's totally different again. So there's no way to keep up with it. They then go and look, you know, like FDR did. Hey, you're the big four automakers. What would be fair? How can we make this right for everybody? Mm. And they develop all these rules because the guys in Washington don't know. So they just go to the experts and they close all the doors for everybody. Yeah, well, that's always the problem is when there's more regulation, start to get suspicious. When there's more regulation, particularly that's being proposed by business, get twice as suspicious right that's what we need to do i mean one of the beautiful things about capitalism is you don't have to know everything you only have to know your thing and one of the things that we need to do is to is to take barriers away from people in productive activity it's the same thing glenn is barriers away from people to doing what they need to do in their own lives you know the 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 big problem that we have in the united states of of happiness is that is faith family friends and work and so we don't need government to actually create regulations a a pro-religion bureaucracy 
bureaucracy that's mm-hmm. like the, the worst thing ever or pro mm-hmm. you know the, the the department of families or something mm-hmm. and we don't certainly don't need you know the friends bureaucracy uh, what we need is to take away the disincentives for people to do those things. And that means getting out of the way of those things. And, you know, the government is in the way of faith, family, community and work. The, the government is in the way of productive activity and in the way of entrepreneurship all the time. So that's say, what the president needs to do. But they will say that, for instance, it's not scalable. For instance, uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. you know this. It, once you have a company over 150 employees, it changes. Right. It just changes. We, I found that. <laughs> right. We as individuals, we're, we're built to have 30 maybe really good friends, okay, right. in our life. Right. We are not capable of having, you know, a, a thousand followers and a thousand friends on Facebook. It's, it doesn't work. At it's actually scale. bad for us. Right. Yeah. Right. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. work at scale. Yeah. So, that's the problem that they'll say, because because it's coming now. The Internet has been great. We haven't really regulated the Internet until right. recently. It's it's been a wild west. And right. look what it's done. But now you're starting to have problems because now who do I trust? Right. What do I do? So now they're starting to come in. And the argument will be. It's out of control. People are allowed to do just anything. Just say anything. And I say, yeah. Mm. You have to choose to get over it. Right. Or you have to choose not to participate in it, which is exactly what we're talking about here is protecting ourselves by opting out. In a lot of cases, opting out of that part of the economy in the same way that I opt out of cigarettes. I opt out of alcohol. I opt out of pornography because those things are bad for me. And so what we need to do as individuals, like all progress, I mean, institutional solutions, fine. Right. I'm glad that there are some institutional solutions, but all progress comes from the heart of the individual. Yes. There is no other way. You know, when we and and what we're talking about with antitrust, with very large tech firms, for example, these are sophisticated problems, to be sure. But to the extent that we are victimized by the Internet. This is really because we're abusing the product and just basically say, mm-hmm. you know, well, you know, what we need you know, Glenn, man. I just can't stay off Twitter. So I need more regulation of Twitter. Don't get off Twitter. Twitter. It's very simple. It's very simple. Be the master of yourself. You know, it's like there's too much hatred in my life. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make hatred illegal. No, stop hating. Start loving. You know, this is the key. Whenever we get into a very bad place in the United States, whether it's in the Civil War or whether it's today, we must follow it with a self-improvement revolution. There is no other way. That's how we're if anybody who's watching us wants to save America. Start by acting in a different way personally. (laughs) That's where it comes from. That's where the social movement starts. We need a million social movements that will come together. You know, the the, the politicians, you know, the outrage industrial complex that are ginning up this hatred. It's not because they're awful people. It's because they're followers and they're demand signals that are coming from us. There's a parade going down the street and they're like, I got to get in front of that parade. It needs a leader. In democratic capitalist societies, there are no true leaders. There are only followers who look Mm -hmm. like leaders. So each one of us has to be the true leader. And and, and each one of us who wants to make it better to say, basically, I'm just not I'm not part of that parade, man. I'm going down this alley. And then if enough people start doing it, I want to I don't want to be the 70 people yelling at the other side of the ballroom. I want to be the five people laughing over here. And that's when 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 the politicians and the media and the and the, you know, the academics and all the people who are part of the outrage industrial complex, they go, huh? OK, I guess this direction we're going. Do you know any leaders like this? Do you know anybody who's 
I know a lot of people who want to do this. Everybody I talk to, look, it's the weirdest thing. I'm writing, if I had written a book, I would be, you know, mega bestseller, you know, Republicans are stupid or or liberals are evil. Yeah. If I'd written that book, you know, mega bestseller, right? No. (laughs) So I said, you know, it was a calculated risk. I spent the last two years praying and writing and thinking about how to write a book called Love Your Enemies, a a self-improvement personal revolution book for me and for people who want to think this way. And I thought, you know, maybe sells 10 copies. I don't know. You know, and, and, and the weirdest thing is this book has been out for a couple of weeks now and it sold tens of thousands of copies a week. I mean, this is selling better than any book I've ever read. I've ever written, read, ever. It, it, this is selling better. <laughs> really? Selling better than the this Bible. You better. heard it right here. <laughs> this is selling better than any book I've ever written. Right. And what that means is it doesn't mean that this is the best book ever written. No. There's an inchoate. There's a zeitgeist. There is a demand. There is a desire for this. And if we grab it, I mean, then, then the politi- there's a lot of politicians that you and I love that we really like, then they'll be set free too. And it's time for us to set our leaders free. Let me change to tech. Yeah. Um, you think a lot about tech. A lot. And you like tech. I so love to, tech. To be sure. So the, I, don't sure, I want to make sure that our audience understands. My Glenn Beck, conservative guy, thinks that the tech economy is interesting and is promising and is optimistic and is fun. It gives me... It, it's like going to going to Silicon but Valley. But that's countercultural, man, because, you know, conservatives are always like, ah, oh, no, it's all bad. It's all terrible. It's, no. it's dystopian. It's, you know what it is? The Constitution and the Declaration. You take the Declaration out. But the Constitution is just a system. And right. it's going to be based on moral sentiments. <laughs> the Internet. Good, bad. It's both right. based on moral sentiments. Right. Same thing with tech. It's going to be the worst or the best, but it's all going to be up to us. Right. Okay. It's going to be a reflection. It's going to be a mirror. Yeah. It's going to be an amplification. Right. System. I got it. Okay. Got it, it. It, it, and the amplification, uh, like a giant, like a, a giant mirror out in the sun, it'll vaporize things if we're bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the internet, the ultimate karma. <laughs> it is. Okay, so uh, uh, I look at tech and I see the unlimited potential ahead of us. I also see... 1984 will look like child's play. Mm. You know, they're already doing it in China uh, or headed that direction. Um, I see a, I see a world of no disease. I see a world where we can pursue the things that we want to pursue freedom. Like we've never, Mm. the, the one time I could ever say the founders never envisioned this Mm. would be what's on the horizon with tech right okay all good ways all good some bad i was gonna say yeah. then there is the darker side right. of the prison that it could uh build but i think the first one and i'd like to hear your thoughts on this the first trouble that will come is unemployment and we have a we have a disconnect from washington and silicon valley and the american people washington is saying we're going to get the unemployment rate to zero. Right. And that's good. 
while the people who are building the next economy are saying, we're going to get unemployment to 100%. Because we don't have to work anymore. Right. <laughs> okay. Disconnect. Yeah. And the American people who are not involved in this and really don't see that the Industrial Revolution that took 100 years is going to happen in the next 10. Yes. And when that happens, the pressure is going to come down. The politicians are going to do one of two things. We know they're going to do this. I'll bring those jobs back. No, they're not. No, they're not. When, the, when they start to say that and they really realize those jobs aren't coming back. Mm-hmm. We have Silicon Valley here. Right. They have really only one thing to do, and that is to team up with Silicon Valley. Otherwise... We're going to go with torches and kill those those evil scientists that are making all these (laughs) spooky machines. You know what I mean? And no one is talking about things. And I don't agree with this. This is what I want an answer on. I do not agree with basic universal income. Right. Okay. However. In a time where we would have 30 percent, according to Bain Capital, 30 percent permanent unemployment by 2030 you got to have something in that transition because you got a lot of people like me that wait twitter's no longer cool and what is this snapchat thing right that just do not adapt real fast they won't be able to shift and it will cause all kinds of strife how do we solve the upheaval that 10-year upheaval as a bridge to the answer i mean the obvious answer is we don't know right. or we don't know i mean we're we're we're, we're, we're it's going to happen and we're going to get through it right right the question right. is how much pain and what the pain looks like and how can we What's attenuate the threshold the pain? before ca- total chaos yeah. and that's a, a big reason why some people are pushing for a socialism in a ubi ubi unlimited basic income okay so to begin with I actually don't agree entirely with the premise that we're going to get to this 30% unemployment. Why? Because what traditionally happens is that when there's a technological revolution and and all that technology means is that we use inputs differently. The Mm -hmm. inputs are simple. There's labor, there's land, there's capital, and there's entrepreneurship. Those are the only inputs into any production process in the whole economy. Mm -hmm. And the way that those things work together differently, that's a change in technology. You know, it might be a machine or it might be, you know, a new way of thinking or, Mm -hmm. you know, something, right? It might be college, you know, whatever it happens to be. Okay. So when there's a technological revolution that changes the way that we do things, Generally speaking, it doesn't destroy jobs. It changes jobs. Every job is 22 or 25 or 40 things. I mean, Glenn Beck's job is like 700,000 things, right? Because you run this big company. But most people's jobs are literally like 25 things that they know how to do that mm-hmm. require expertise. Mm-hmm. What technology does is, it, is, is it, 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 it pulls all of those 25 things apart and puts them in a box and then mixes in everybody else's 25 things, shakes the box, mm-hmm. and takes out handfuls of 25 new things things and Mm -hmm. passes them out and those are the new jobs the reason that young people do better is they're trained up in the new bundles of 25 Mm -hmm. and so that's the challenge Mm -hmm. is not because we have become overtaken by events that we've become obsolete we basically only know how to do eight of the 22 things in our jobs and so that's what we need to do is we need to disintermediate those and learn how to train people in different parts of what the new collection of jobs happen to be that's not just votech that's not just career and technical education or, 
or, or you know, technical school, vocational school. That's not what we're talking about. We're training people in new individual tasks, and that's a much smaller job. That's a much easier job than saying you used to be a driver, and now there's driverless trucks, and so now we're going to teach you how to how to fix air conditioning systems mm-hmm. when you're 60. Well, it's not going to happen, man. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually how the job is going to change. The job is going to change in many different ways, and so you're going to have to learn how to do this with a computer slightly differently while you continue to do this as part of your old job. And that's how we need to be thinking about it. That's how the best the, 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 the best research that I've seen says that that's the challenge. And that's a less daunting challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. And I think part of that challenge is getting people to realize that nothing will be the same tomorrow and being comfortable with that. Nobody's ever going to be really comfortable with it. But if we had a more entrepreneurial culture, we could be much more comfortable than we currently are. If we didn't have leaders on both parties that were telling people to be afraid of the future and afraid of each other. Yes. It would be a lot better. We shouldn't be afraid of each other and we shouldn't be afraid of the future because this is America. And we're a strong country that's dealt with a lot worse. Okay, when you said that there's, you know, only five things that happen, you know, for for uh, jobs. Yeah. Okay. What were the five again? It was uh, um, the five things that happened for yeah for for uh, a market to. I don't remember. Oh, okay, so the, the, the inputs are yeah, the inputs. Yeah, they're labor, labor, capital. Okay, stop. Which, right. Stop. Capital. Yes. Right. Labor. Right. Uh. uh um. Robotics. Next one. Well, and what that's a substitution of capital for labor. But it changes the relationship of labor to capital because you're still going to need people that are just doing different things in relation to capital. You won't need as many. Yeah. Well, you'll need it. You'll actually, in a weird way, you know, it's a funny thing. In the Industrial Revolution, everybody thought that, that, ca- that capital was going to substitute for labor and labor was going to be just like overtaken by events and never do anything. Yeah. And it turns out we needed more labor. In the end, we need more people, more people doing more stuff because the whole economy. That was the miracle of capitalism. It's not a zero sum. It's a bigger and bigger and bigger pie. But we have to make sure that people have expertise such that they can work with this expanded capital in a way that they can't currently do it. So you see what I mean, right? Yeah, I I think I do. Yeah, I think I do. Um, The problem is you read uh, Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. Hmm. You know, he talked about there will be a time when all of this will be Latin to the average person. Yeah. And so they'll just be going to the high priest of tech and going, make this work. Uh, You know what I mean? We are not learning. We are not expanding. We are we are a a, um, we are becoming calcified. That's the threat. See, that's the threat. See, if we were actually expanding our knowledge and we were expanding our confidence and we were less fearful, then we could actually have expanding human capital, education, skills, jobs that would match with the changing physical capital, which is the machines and the software that are coming into our world such that that, that labor could be appropriate to it and up to the task. You know, we have way more people working. I mean, right now, I mean, there are seven and a half billion Mm -hmm. people alive. Only 100 billion people have ever lived and died before Mm -hmm. the 
current in humanity that we see on Earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all those people that are, that are alive today, that's, their workforces are so much bigger than they used to be. And yet everything's automated particularly compared to what it was 200 years ago. Oh, yeah. And that's because when, when you're more productive, you have more productive capacity, you have more capital, you actually need more labor and everybody gets richer and more stuff gets done if, if you're not calcified, if you're actually willing to learn and change. And that's the main task of our leadership today. Look, we have, you and I have both railed against education systems that are appropriate to the 1950s, mm-hmm. that are teaching the same Maybe. stuff that you and I learned in the 1970s, mm-hmm. as school kids in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. I mean, not exactly, but, but for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. That's actually, that's just rigid and, and doesn't have any choice. And, and is, you know, the, the, the way that the structure, it's, it's kind of like education systems a lot for the benefit of the of the educators as opposed to the students in the future of the country. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the problem, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain, and, and unless we can modernize that, then we can't improve the human capital. If we can't improve the human capital, then we're stuck in the dystopian future you described. Do you believe uh, in AGI and ASI? That's coming. I mean, these things are coming. I do believe that these things are coming. Um, it's, it's funny. Um, I was talking to a guy, the guy was, it was in, in my own, my hometown of Seattle, and I was back there for some spe- some speeches I was given. I, Did you grow up in Seattle? In Queen Anne Hill. Really? Queen Anne Hill, north side of Queen Anne Hill, I yeah. Born in Everett and lived in Mount Lake Terrace and then moved to Mount Vernon. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's maybe why... That's why we connect, man. It is. And yeah. it may be why we connect with our heart, because yeah. there's something different in the business. It's gone nuts now, <laughs> but there's something different. I know. Anyway. I was talking to this guy, and we were driving. Uh, it was at night, and, and he was driving me um, up uh, uh, one south past the old Sears building. This is now the Starbucks mm-hmm. building. And I said, oh, you know, we're near Boeing Field. And I said, yeah, go over there, because I saw, I said, let's go let's get on the I-5, and let's go up the freeway instead. Because I want to see if I can see from the freeway into the, it was at night, the open hangar where they're building the 787. Because it's such a beautiful plane. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing it. We were talking about it. It turns out he's really into innovation and tech. And, and I said, I just, I just read an article. And I said, give me your impression of this. He was, a, he was a very, very pious, religious Muslim guy. And give me your, tell me this. I, I just read an article, since you're really into tech, that in 40 years, you'll be able to download your mind Right. And, and this is basically some combination of AGI and ASI. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you think about that? And he says, oh, it doesn't make sense. And I said, why not? He says, because you can't download the soul. And that's how people see it. And so this is the key difference. There's a there's a the, the, the frontiers of technology are vast. They're, we don't know where they go, but humans are fundamentally different. That's I mean, and the I disagree soul, with you more. I totally agree with you myself. Right. But the way it's going to be perceived. And here's why. Um, uh, You know who Stephen Hawking is? Of course. Okay. So uh, I've talked to him several times, and this is one of the main things that scares the hell out of me with Stephen Hawking. Uh, uh, Not Stephen Hawking. um, uh, Oh, shoot. Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. No, no, no. He's uh, he's a high tech guy. Silicon Valley uh, started the University of uh, Peter Thiel. No, I can't remember now. Uh, Oh, my gosh. Uh, Wrote the age of spiritual machines. Oh, um, 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 uh, yeah. He was the guy. (laughs) He was at Microsoft. What is it? Yes. Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. Okay. So Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil. Yeah, right. For sure. So Ray is 
leading this. And and I think in a kind of a creepy way, right. he's, you know, he's looking for the singularity. And right. I think he's trying to recreate his dad, quite right. honestly, which is a whole nother subject. He's basically that that was behind this whole concept of downloading the mind. Correct. Right. He says it'll happen by 2030. OK. But he sees the mind just as or the person just as a a a, a map of right. how you think. Yeah. Okay. Um, He's a complete materialist. He basically oh, yeah, says yeah. the mind exists inside the brain. Yeah. He, right? Yeah. He's yeah. He's different. But he's you know, well, different. I mean, not only that, he doesn't believe in the soul. Correct. Correct. He doesn't believe the soul exists. Correct. Right. Correct. Okay. So uh, I've had some <laughs> I've had some interesting exchange. I so respect him and I believe him that he can accomplish some of the things that he talks about. But he also scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Why? Um because he he looks at humanity differently than I do. He right. believes he believes we'll come to a time when if you get cancer, we'll just download you into a right. computer. Well, that's not me, Ray. That's that that's a copy of me. That's not my soul. And he doesn't believe in a soul. So, right. you know, but doesn't that's a deal. distinction without a difference to him. Yeah, but, yeah, but hang right. on. And for you. OK, but hang on. Uh-huh. When you pass the Turing test, when you get. AI. Look at how people already will treat basic AI. Right now, you have people just with Siri. You have people like me who are like, shut up, Siri. Shut up. They actually, Siri makes you a little mad. Yeah. Or something irritates because, you. you know, and you don't mind. You, you know it's a machine. There are others who are like, don't, don't, don't talk to Siri. And they're serious. Don't yeah. talk to Siri. That's very low level. Uh, I talked to a research psychologist, a sexual psychologist, um, and she said, uh, I heard her on a podcast and say, you know, we should get we can get AI and we can put that into a, a body and maybe a body of a robot of a child and give them to pedophiles to see if they can take out their aggression on those because it'll be a lifelike experience. And so they know they can get it out there and not on real children. And I'm thinking to myself, A, that sounds nuts. Two, the minute that that machine claims to be conscious, because it will, and it will not be human, but it will be convincing enough to a human that you will start to have compassion for it. Okay. A, I don't want to be enslaving something that claims to be alive. B, you and I know it's not alive, but when it becomes convincing enough to be alive, then what happens? So here's why I'm not worried about it. Okay. People anthropomorphize their pets. Mm -hmm. People attribute human characteristics to animals all the time. And yet we haven't gotten to the point where we give equal human rights to animals. There are some people who want to. But it's not going to work. It's never going to get to the point where we say it is. I mean, we might get to the point where we can grow animal protein in the laboratory such that we don't have to factory farm animals. And we decide that that's not the most ethical thing to do. But we're still not saying that a chicken is basically a person. I mean, we it feel doesn't have we, we don't feel, relate to a chicken. We it's they're not ensouled in the same way. We don't believe that they're ensouled as people. People naturally, not everybody, not not, you know, a lot of atheists and not a lot of materialists and not a lot of, you know, philosophers throughout mm-hmm. history. But most of us believe that we are ensouled as people. And there's something different about the human soul than any other being living or pseudo living. Oh, I can't wait. I, gotta wait. I can't wait. For 20 years, we both have to be alive. To we got to talk about this again, right? We have to, talk about we have to decide again. whether or not the robot is more like a person or more like a dog. 
Yeah. And that's I'm telling you, it's going to be more like a per- majority of people because it will become so lifelike yeah. and it will be very persuasive. Nah, I think it's Glenn. I think it's going to be more like my dog, Chucho. Why? I think because that because we can we can distinguish, you know, the fact that it isn't a person. You know what that is? No. OK, so um, you know how Pixar when they any any animation company, they they take the features and they make the eyes really right. big or they change them. So, it, it, you know, it's not human right. because of something called the uncanny valley. And you like something that looks human. Right. And then all of a sudden it gets close enough to where it nose dives and people are like, I don't like that. And now I don't like it. I don't like that. Yeah. That's creeping right, me out. Right, right. Okay? So we're still nose diving. But right. they think and this is a big if they think if they can really nail it. Yeah. It'll come right back up. That's a, That's an empirical question. Yeah, it really is. An, it's a question we don't know the answer to. But I, I, I you know, I. Again, a part of this is, is informed by my Christian faith that there, this, the insolment is inherently known unless I mean, there are going to be cases in which we become confused. There are going to be cases in which we confuse ourselves on person because in, on, on purpose because we're too clever by half. But I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can't even say it's male and female anymore. Well, we can because most people still do. I think I think most people do. And, but and people are afraid to say it. People are afraid to say it, but I think that in the end, particularly when we're talking about what is the essence of humanity, that we're not going to cross that line because we can't, because the soul is still the soul. Because the guy who said, you can't download your mind because you can't download the soul. In the end, he recognized I me. Mean, he inherently knew it. Like he hadn't been thinking about this. I mm-hmm. presented him with this and it was just his. But you started with, he is a deeply uh, you didn't use religious uh, Muslim, you used deeply pious. pious Muslim. So you started with the premise that he's coming from a soul based right. point of view. Right. The world is going that way. You know, unless that's, there's a reconnection yeah, to that. I think that we can get to that. So therefore, you have just defined that what we need to do. What we don't need to do is to try to put, you know, head the brakes on technology because it's not going to happen. That's Absolutely. an exercise in futility. Yeah, right. And it's it's so what we need to bad. do is if we really if we, if what the, the world that I think is going to be and you want to be, even though you're not sure it's going to be, is where we can tell where we can distinguish the ensoulment of a being versus that which is a simulacrum for humanity. I would, that's what I'm going to pretend. I, I, of course, know what a simulacrum is. But there are probably some people in the audience that don't know what something <laughs> something that simulates something else, something that looks like it, okay. but it isn't. OK, it's a simulacrum. OK, okay. so it's a, so, you know, the, 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 the super lifelike, you know, dumb it down here. Well, Mr. no, Harvard <laughs> professor. Dumb it down. <laughs> I have no idea. Every fifth word. I'm like, I have no idea. OK, <laughs> hey, man, you, you, you're, you're giving me the acronyms AGI and AC, ASM. I'm like, oh, man, it's like, you're killing me. man. I'm just an economist. So the it, you know, one way or the other. Whether or not I'm right or your fears come to pass or whether or not my confidence is more appropriate one way or the other, the world's going to be better. What a way to frame that. Did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) Your fears and my confidence. How about my confidence and your lunatic utopia? I know my lunatic. Loving your enemies, man. (laughs) And the robots, too. They're coming to kill us, but it's all good. Anyway, so so one way or the other, 
if we don't like the idea where people can't distinguish yeah. and where people are no longer fully human because humanity is now is now manufactured, if we don't want that, yeah. then we have to actually fight it. And the only way that we can fight it is by, by re- remembering the one thing that the robot can never have, which is divinity. The robot can't have divinity. And if we believe the divinity actually exists, we have to make sure that people continue to understand that. And that means we need a revolution of faith. We need a revolution of soul. We need a revolution of the heart. That nothing else is going to do it. You know, tech is not going to take care of us. If, 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 if Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus, and they actually believe that these things are true, then they need a re-evangelization. We need a new enlightenment. And, and the good news is that traditionally throughout American history, these enlightenments, these, these times of you know, great religious fervor, they come along with self-improvement movements. You know, the temperance movement was fundamentally religious and it had to do with evangelical Christianity mm-hmm. coming across the United States. And, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the big burst of activity of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, your church, was during the self-improvement movement. It was part and parcel of the self-improvement yeah. movement. And so you can't disentangle. You can't uh, uh, to take apart self-improvement from religious fervor. Let's not try to do it. What we need then is we need religious entrepreneurs that are reminding people of the divinity that is within each one of us. That is our ultimate defense. Okay, so I 100% agree. Let me take you then quickly to to faith. I was talking to Billy Graham and I said, where, 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 do, you, where do you see this? headed how is how are we going to navigate this and he said um the next great awakening is not going to happen with one guy there's not going to be a billy graham it's going to be individuals all of the individuals just rising up and doing it themselves he did not mean this but i i uh, i do um i agree with that and i think the church, unless the church, and I say that as a whole body, wakes up to reality, you know, what people are really feeling, what people are really struggling with, what they're really afraid of. And I got, I got more out of, uh, you know, a couple of hours with Tony Robbins uh, that's deep, that's deep, than you get in a lot of churches. And some of these churches are violating their yeah. own principles. Yeah. Um, My own church. I'm a Catholic and it's, it's in crisis. It's just in crisis. We all right are. Now. I think we all are. The people are in the, the Southern Baptists to have that terrible report that talked about sexual abuse and, you know, we're not living up to our own standards for sure. And people are, you know, the, the biggest rise in religious activity, you know, the category, you know what it is? Nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, the <laughs> yeah. non-affiliated people. That's a huge crisis because it just means people are walking away. People are just like bored. It's inactivity. It's just... It's torpor. It's, you know, the kind of thing where it's funny. I was in on, on Christmas Day. I was in Barcelona, which is where I go a lot because my wife's from Barcelona. And uh, I went to Christmas mass in Barcelona. There were like mm. 12 people in church at Christmas oh mass. Gosh. It's a formerly in that, Spain, in Spain. Spain is a formerly Catholic country. Yeah. They used to it, torture it, you if you were. Torquemada <laughs> <laughs> was a long time ago. A long time ago. Yes. I'll <laughs> give you that. <laughs> uh, so, but, but, you know, I have 20 years ago, you know, went to the same church and had my son, my oldest son was baptized 21 years ago in that same church. It was on Christmas mass. It was fall. And it's emptied out. And that's what that's the real threat that we face. And that's, you know, what we need is a a revolution of interest and of each person actually finding the fire within. 
Well, how do we do that? You know, it's interesting because when you look back at, at Poland at the end of the at the end of the Cold War, mm-hmm. when the, the nine days in Poland, when JP two, when John Paul II mm-hmm. he went there, mm-hmm. and you know the communists they, they had to they had to let him come, I and mean, there was yeah. just no nothing yeah. they could do, but they could keep they were trying to keep control, and a third of the country saw him in person during those nine days. I mean, he was just like mobbed every place. And in, and finally in, in Warsaw, in the central square the, on the last day, when in unison a million people started to chant, we want God. That wasn't JP2. That was the heart of each person in unison mm-hmm. saying, I demand divinity. I demand to be fully alive. I demand to be a human. What is the ultimate dehumanizing system? Communism. Communism is what turns us into the robots. It makes us into homo economicus, you know, where we're nothing more than an economic unit, mm-hmm. right? It makes us into the, you know, the dystopian fears that we have about tech, about being able to distinguish between the people and the machines and, and the machines substituting for the people. That you know, communism is a kind of, is a little, it's like a little a demonstration project for that, right? And how did how was that beaten? That was beaten through two things where Ronald Reagan showed the rest of the world. He said, "You know what you want. You want to be free. You want to throw off your chains." And John Paul II said, "And you want God because you have the divine within you." And those two things they brought down the iron curtain. Okay. So maybe the iron curtain is going to be the silicon curtain. Maybe that's what we're going to be talking about. Maybe the dystopian future is one where there are these alternatives, but there's still only going to be one future, which is the finding the divine within Mm -hmm. and finding the liberty of what it means to be fully alive and to be living my own life because I'm a true individual. I'm not a cog in a machine. I am somebody who's, who has incarnated soul. And, you know, and, and if we actually, as those of us who are leaders who believe these things, if we're going to do one thing, it's that we have to propagate this and we have to teach people that this is true and we have to show people how to live that and then they'll be free. This has been a blast. Thank you. Glenn Beck, every minute with you is a blast, it man. It's fun. <laughs> uh, the name of the book is Love Your Enemies, Arthur C. Brooks. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you, Glenn. God bless you. Just a reminder. I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.